watchers in the fourth dimension. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And Eldrad must live? This episode, we're heading back to contemporary England, where we will contend with the Hand of Fear before we say goodbye to a much-loved character. But before we dig into that, Julie's going to take a look at the mail, and we have quite a lot stored up, so we're going to tackle feedback from three episodes today. Many of you commented on multiple episodes, but we honestly don't have time to read all of it, so we've selected one comment per person. And over to you, Julie. All right, here we go. We have one main general feedback, and that is from Sean Collicut. So happy to be listening to some more episodes. I want to thank you, especially for the Black Adder one. I'd forgotten how fantastic and hilarious it is. Miss hearing you guys. I can't tell you how happy listening to your podcast makes me feel, and I forget all the bad things that have been happening in life. Please keep up your awesome work. You were sorely missed. And yes, we also like to do this to get away from the bad things that are happening in life. <laughs> Am I wrong? You're not wrong. Now on to the secret invasion. The android invasion. Now for the android invasion. Yeah, don't get your Marvel stuff in here. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm sorry. All right, Nick Rutherford says, sounds like you concur with Kenneth Williams, who wrote in his diary of this one, Doctor Who gets sillier and sillier. Definitely a mix of the good, the bad, and the mediocre. Yeah. I love the joy with which the Doctor declares, let's try the pub. I've been to that village. It is beautiful. The location filming is indeed one of the best things about this one, along with the chemistry between the Doctor and Sarah. Would concur. And then from Troy Hunter, I have a soft spot for this one. It's fun. It's mysterious. I don't hate the crawls. And while the plot is daft, it skips along at a good pace. It's also a good Sarah story. Plus, finger guns are a hoot. That's an accurate statement right there. It's said that this is the last unit hurrah for Yonks. Finally, I always think this would have been more fun if they didn't give away the goods in the title. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Although I disagree about the crawls. (laughs) But I'll just leave that one there. Our good friend Adam Wright says, I see the crawls and just see bulldogs. (laughs) All right. Okay. Didn't really make that connection before. This story had some interesting concepts that mirrored the fear of enemies developing sleeper agents in secret training towns. Fair. Is death mid? Not a favorite. Not disliked. Episode one is perfect. And then slides down from there. Shout out to Heather Emanuel, briefly, giving some Lady Melodin as Tessa. Yeah, it says briefly, uh, because they just don't like women. <laughs> <laughs> I know Adam has previously talked about counting the number of people of color in these stories, so I do appreciate him writing mm. in to point out Tessa. <laughs> really, really appreciate it. Our friend Kieran James Evans says, A lot of people slag this off, but I like it. Bit dumb in parts, but great atmosphere. And other than the cheapness and Barry Lutz CSO fetish, the only thing that annoys <laughs> me is the title. <laughs> The first episode and a bit is built on not knowing what is going on, but the title tells us from the start. Grrr. Yes. <laughs> is Barry Let's CSO fetish, is that related to the Alan Parsons project? Are they both kind of 70s prog <laughs> rock bands? <laughs> you think that, Riley. You just go ahead and I will. go think that way. Anyway, I rate this as an enjoyable 6.5 out of 10 Centaurans from Wish.com. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, wait, wait. Oh, sorry. There was more. 6.5 out of 10. Centaurans from Wish.com trying a secondhand Cyberman plot with knockoff Autons. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. There you go. And then good old Nathan Law says, this one isn't great. I might even like it less than Planet of Evil because it just feels wrong. It's a Terry Nation story without Daleks. It's a unit story without the Brigadier. Let's involvement shows just how far the series has moved on without him. There's the overuse of CSO, as it was mentioned, but the let's contribution that still rankles me is that he convinced Hinchcliffe that since they were overrunning, it would be okay to cut the scene where the doctor reactivates his Android duplicate. He claimed that no one would notice, but of course, it's one of the biggest gaping plot holes in the whole serial. <laughs> <laughs> in other circumstances doing variations on tropes can be fantastic but in this case it just seems like what's lacking is highlighted and i don't really think i can disagree nathan we're almost done with this one paul arthur aka doctor who 60s 70s and 80s on instagram i must be the only person in the fandom who thinks that crayford eye patch thing sort of works oh okay so it all falls apart if you think about it for more than a second but I always think the reveal must have been quite effective if you were a kid in 1975. <laughs> Don't think it. Just feel it. Chat Grande 67. I remember the trailer for this on telly the Friday night before. Looked quite creepy. I thought, I must watch that. What did you actually think of it? <laughs> no one knows. I'd love to see those old trailers. Some of them are out there. I can try and <laughs> dig some of them up. Maybe we'll post them on our socials. Moving on to our relaunch live show. This is going to include mostly things that weren't necessarily brought in as a part of the live show. David McCracken says, great to have you back. I already watched the YouTube replay. Sorry, I missed it live. Totally get it. <laughs> Can't revolve your entire <laughs> life around us, although I wish everyone would. Don Moore said, I'm glad you're back listening to Doctrine the TARDIS just for you. Cat, aka Citrine Dragonfly. So glad you're back. Seeing the podcast in my feed again was a spark of joy. And that makes me happy. Then Adam Brown, you're back. What a lovely surprise to drop in my feed today. Not much to say beyond thank you. Missed you guys. And I think just in general, we had a huge swell of feedback when our first new episodes dropped after our hiatus. And it really means a lot to us. So thank you, everyone. Um, it's really nice to get all of the welcome backs from you. Now we're going to move on to the feedback for The Brain of Morbius. Arl Gray says, this one was bittersweet, but fun as always. Continuity note, the reference to the guest dirigibles of the Hutai is invoked in a major way in Paul Cornell's book, Love and War, and its big finish adaptation. Love little callbacks like that. <laughs> <laughs> Love callbacks like that. Haven't gotten there in big finish. <laughs> Our good, good, good friend, Alan Seiler. I'm a little late getting to this, but Wow. A 9.75? That's crazy. <laughs> a thoroughly enjoyable episode reviewing a thoroughly enjoyable Doctor Who story. I love how much fun you had with this one, but the absolute highlight of the episode was Riley singing in Kondo's voice. Amazing. <laughs> Welcome back, watchers! And all caps with exclamation points. So it's normally Julie who gets the props for singing. So I know. this is delightful that it's Riley this time. I will never subject anyone to my singing voice. <laughs> one day, everyone. One day. I'll never expect it. Now, our good friend, Mark Dunstan. Doctor Who meets Pan's people from Top of the Pops. I'm actually not sure what that is in reference to. <laughs> Maybe Anthony can help me out here. 
I'm not 100% sure, but Top of the Pops, when there wasn't a music video made for a song, they would employ dance troops. So I'm guessing that there's probably a dance troupe with an aesthetic similar to the brain of Morbius somehow. That would be my guess. All right, great. A great episode deserves a high score. The brain falling on the floor was nasty. The Morbius voice was one of the best. A big welcome back. Thanks, Mark. And if you have some reference for that top of the pops that you would like to send in, please do. I'd like Mm -hmm. to see it. And then this one is very nice, short and sweet. And it's Keith McNeil says, my favorite Doctor Who story. Wow. Well, I mean, I gave it a 10. (laughs) Get it. All right, Jam Casey. It is sort of surprising to me that while there's plenty of Frankenstein references in the serial, aside from a bit of alchemical talk, which isn't a big part of the book at all, mind you, it's pretty much all universal film and not Mary Shelley's novel. I don't mind that. I like those films too, especially Bride of Frankenstein, but it's just interesting. Fair play on that. I can see what exactly he's talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Universal really did define what Frankenstein is to most people for a long time, though I feel that has changed now. Shelley's book seems to have greater influence and has met with renewed acclaim and success in the last 40 years or so. I must have read it three times in school and revisited it in 2020 with a whole new perspective. And just a shout out on that, J.M. Casey is a host of a podcast called Chrononauts, which is a podcast about science fiction in literature. And Hmm. I think Frankenstein, if I recall correctly, was one of the very first ones they covered. It's quite a good podcast. Very, very informative. Definitely worth a listen. Now we get one of our favorites, Beardo Beatnik. Still love the name. I'm stunned you all gave it such high praise, but that's part of your charm, helping us old school Whovians rethink our opinions. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here. Now, Austin D. Patterson, I'm surprised to learn this was the cheap episode, but that just goes to show how good the writing and acting was. I would agree. Love to hear my favorite movie, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, get mentioned on my favorite (laughs) podcast. Oh, your favorite. Jane in the Pan. That's a (laughs) reference. I, I, I gathered that. And also, I think we're all slowly realizing that the Doctor's greatest enemies are not the Daleks, Cyberman, or the Master, but are instead John Wiles, Mary Whitehouse, and Michael Grade. (laughs) We haven't got to Michael Grade yet on the show, but we will. (laughs) Another short, sweet, and simple one from the Discussing Who podcast, one of our personal favorites. Obviously, we agree. Thanks, guys. And then last but not least, Northerly Marie says, Brain of Morbius is a great opportunity to up the woman count with a whole sisterhood in a camp count by five. (laughs) Not surprised it got such a high rating. Nice. And that, my friends, is the mail. That took a while. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Julie. And as everyone should already know, we really love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And we do try to read out as many of them as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and the platform formerly known as Twitter at at Watchers4D. Or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. Moving on to our behind-the-scenes segment, this story has a rather convoluted production history, as seems to be the way of anything that was touched by the Bristol Boys. And as a reminder, the Bristol Boys are the writing duo of Bob Baker and Dave Martin, who had previously written Season 8's The Claws of Axos, Season 9's The Mutants, 
season 10's The Three Doctors, and season 12's The Sontaran Experiment. This story was originally planned to close out season 13, and the initial pitch for the serial came out of producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes's desires to continue mining horror tropes for ideas. Prompted by them, our scriptwriting duo agreed to work on a storyline that involved a murderous hand that moved on its own, taking inspiration from 1946's The Beast with Five Fingers and 1960's The Hands of Orlack. At the same time, the production team were working on winding down the involvement of Unit in the show, and it was originally intended that this story would see Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart go out in a blaze of glory. The writing duo also wanted to pitch the Doctor and the Brigadier up against a ruthless, bloodless villain, and so came up with the idea of a silicon-based lifeform. Their original idea saw the Doctor and Sarah arrive in the 1990s, where technology and military forces were prohibited. Quickly being split up, Sarah would be sent to a commune and the Doctor to a labour camp, where he would meet an older brigadier, now part of EXIT, which was the Extraterrestrial <laughs> Xenological Intelligence Task Force. And together they would learn of an anthropologist called Mountford, who had discovered an ancient fossilised hand. The hand took control of Mountford's mind and forced him to take it to the Newton nuclear reactor, which we had previously seen in the Claws of Axos where radiation would allow the hand to regenerate into its original form, a creature called an Omegan, which was made of pterillium and the creature had previously crash-landed on Earth. What weed were they smoking? <laughs> oh, just hold up, Julie. <laughs> to make things more complicated, the Bristol boys envisioned two Omegans working against each other on Earth, representing different factions of their people. The so-called Hawk Omegans wanted to destroy humanity, while the Dove Omegans wanted to nullify mankind's threat by devolving them into ape-like creatures called trogs, which initially manifested as a backlash against science. I guess we are seeing a few trogs about in this day and age. Oh! Sarah was meant to experience this regression, but this would eventually be undone when the Hawk Omegan destroyed his Dove counterpart. The Hawk then fled Earth in the other Omegan's ship, having reconfigured Newton to explode and obliterate the planet. At the last second, the Doctor managed to redirect the power of the blast to fuel an experimental rocket called the Icarus. Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart commandeered the Icarus and used it to pursue the Omegan. Realising that the Omegan was planning to cause a global catastrophe by suicidally ramming his spaceship into the planet, the Brigadier sacrificed himself by forcing the Omegan to collide with the Icarus. Can they make this one of the animated reconstructions of something that never existed? Because I don't understand what I just heard here. It's bonkers. <laughs> I think this kind of was very quickly realized. So in June 1975, Hinchcliffe and Holmes met with our script writing duo, and it was agreed that they would make some refinements to the storyline, and the near future setting would be removed, as would the Brigadier's demise. Otherwise, they were surprisingly happy with the pitch and commissioned the duo to write the scripts for a six-part serial intended to wrap up season 13 with Douglas Camfield scheduled to direct. And if you listen to our episode on The Seeds of Doom, you already know that things inevitably changed. Over the summer, the duo continued to work on the scripts, finding a way to bring in Harry Sullivan, a giant <laughs> Omegan spaceship referred to as the Monolith, and a new supporting character, an untrustworthy Time Lord called Drax. Now, Julie already said she didn't understand this, and it seems like our production team didn't either, because by the end of the summer, Hinchcliffe and Holmes became increasingly convinced that the scripts for the serial 
required a lot of work in order for them to be filmable. Holmes had been working on rewriting the brain of Morbius, which kept him away from working on the significant edits that would be needed for The Hand of Fear. With that in mind, Robert Banks Stewart was hastily commissioned to write The Seeds of Doom to wrap up season 13, and The Hand of Fear was pushed back to the following season, which is where we are now. During the break, Elizabeth Sladen informed Hinchcliffe that she wished to leave Doctor Who, believing that it was time for her to face new challenges, and Doctor Who was forcing her to turn down other work that she was being offered. At the same time, Douglas Camfield approached the production team and told them that he wanted to write for the show. And he was commissioned to write a serial called The Lost Legion, a four-part adventure that would see a French Foreign Legion outpost getting involved in a campaign between two groups of aliens. And it was agreed that Sarah would be killed off by the last of these aliens. While Hinchcliffe was enthusiastic about The Lost Legion, Holmes was dubious and his concerns grew after Camfield submitted his first scripts. Holmes decided that The Hand of Fear should be readied as a potential replacement for Camfield's serial. He sent a revised set of breakdowns to the Bristol Boys for The Hand of Fear, which was now a four-parter which removed Unit, the devolution element, and Drax. Baker and Martin formally agreed to write the shortened version at the beginning of March 1976, and by the end of March, The Hand of Fear had officially replaced The Lost Legion on the schedule for season 14. And this ended the plans to kill off Sarah Jane Smith, much to Elizabeth Sladen's approval, and apparently Julie's too. As they worked to complete the serial, the Hand of Fear continued to undergo changes. Eldrad's race was renamed to the Castrians to avoid confusion with the Time Lord Omega, and it was decided that the nuclear complex would not be the same one as seen in the Claws of Axos, so Newton became Nunton. Very important difference there, guys. Yeah, have made that difference, sir. Yeah. The production team also told Baker and Martin not to write Sarah's exit scene. That would be written by Robert Holmes as it was to tie into the next serial. With Camfield still working on his own scripts, and having made a promise to his wife to never again direct Doctor Who, The Hand of Fear was reassigned to Lenny Main, and it would sadly be Lenny Main's final work on Doctor Who, as he would die in a boating accident the following year. Joining Main behind the scenes, Chris Doyley John continues his run as production unit manager, Dudley Simpson returns to the show to provide music for the 41st time. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. And there's more to come, guys. Christine Rusko returns as designer for the second time. She had previously worked on last season's Pyramids of Mars. And Barbara Lane provides costumes for the eighth and final time, having started her association with the show on season four's The War Machines. So she goes all the way back to the first Doctor. And we had, of course, most recently seen her work on season 13's The Seeds of Doom. The completed serial went out on four consecutive Saturdays between October the 2nd and 23rd, 1976, varying in time between about 6pm and 6.10, with a small exception for part two, which went out at 5.50. And I've spoken for far too long, so with that, I'm going to move us into our short summary, which is with Riley this episode. Take it away, Riley. A group of Jawas who invaded a North Face outlet tried to blow up someone named Eldrad, who does a fantastic Adams Family Thing cosplay. From there, the show becomes a tour of the Oldbury nuclear power station because Eldrad wants radiation. We could have saved some time and put the hand in the microwave, but the hand of microwaving is not a good title. <laughs> so Eldrad gets juiced up and tricks the doctor and Sarah to take him slash her back to their planet, where we discover that the show has been lying to the audience because there is nothing there but an old answering machine message. Eldrad gets tripped into an abyss and the doctor and Sarah say goodbye. On a serious note, everyone pour one out for one of the best doctor companion pairings. Sad face. Yes, sad oh, face. Oh boy. Yeah. 
All right, guys, part one, let's go. Technique crowbars, obliteration modules, King Oaken, spans <laughs> as a measuring unit. This cereal is hot, hot, hot off the bat. <laughs> what I've actually started to notice, I think more recently, especially in Tom Baker's era, is you get this opening that until you get into part three or part four, the opening doesn't make any sense. And you're trying to figure out how it really fits super well with it, at least in my opinion. It's fun when it has this one setting and then it takes you back to Earth and then you come back to that setting. I don't know. I mean, it definitely is a jolt because you're shocked by what you're seeing because it's so foreign and unusual. But I feel like it would have been a bit more approachable or easier to digest if they didn't have their voices that way, because I honestly could not understand them and had to put the closed <laughs> captioning on at times. And I'm not kidding. In my joke before, I really thought he was calling the other guy Technique Crowbar. <laughs> I just find it funny that you're like, oh, I needed to use closed caption. I'm like, I've been using closed captioning since the Cyberman came around. <laughs> it just constantly lives on my TV now. I think one of my favorites was their costumes because those were just some comforters that were sewn together. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. they have discovered the art of quilting. Yes, they have. It's apparently yes. a universal concept, guys. <laughs> one other thing I love about this beginning is just as they're about to lose control, they decide to trigger the explosion of Eldrad's craft, despite there being a one in three million chance of particle survival. And to me, particle survival implies that maybe a couple of particles survive. Not only do a couple of particles survive, <laughs> but an entire fucking hand. <laughs> that is some ineffective stuff. They need to rework their equations because that seems like more than a one in three million chance. <laughs> anyway, that leads us to a quarry, an actual quarry. Which brings me to something that completely took me out of the serial. How the hell does the doctor not able to ID his quarries? You would think he would know quarries, all the quarries on Earth, like the back of his head. Well, no, because so many of them seem to be alien planets, so he could be anywhere. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's true. All I know is that this is the serial of the obnoxious alarms. Oh, yes. So Very much so. many alarms. I get it. We first have a quarry where they're blowing things up, and then we're in a nuclear power plant. But oh my goodness, turn it off already. <laughs> It was funny because I was watching this on a Saturday morning and my significant other came downstairs just as the alarm for the quarry was going off. And she looked around and went, what's that noise? And I was like, it's the TV, it's Doctor Who, babe. Yeah, I think Rumble is finally just getting accustomed to it because he didn't really flinch too much with these alarms. I will also say, though, I love Sarah Jane's outfit. Yeah, I like the jacket that goes along with it. I don't think you see that too much later, though. It's interesting. I do like the idea of them just having to stumble into the middle of the demolition of a quarry. <laughs> but it goes from a humorous, playful little bit to like, oh, wow. And since I had never seen this before, I kept thinking I knew this Sarah Jane was going to be around for much more. I'm like, okay, I know I would have heard if they killed her in a damn landslide, right? <laughs> I know I would have heard that. That would have not have gone down well. And come on, Riley, you've watched all of New Who. You know that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. I, you can just see Tennant going like, I'm sorry, I remember leaving you in a land in a landslide. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think you raise a good point, because watching this in 1976, again, there was a big press release that Elizabeth Sladen was leaving. So every time when Sarah's in danger, it's that question of, is this how she leaves? 
I think they're very much aware of that because there's so many times when you're like, and she's dead. Yeah. Especially in the first few episodes. And I guess we can bring up the possession thing because thank God that did not carry on too long. Knowing this was like her last one, I didn't want to spend the entire time of her just in a daze being possessed the entire time. I think it's fair not wanting her to be possessed the entire time, but I do have to say she nailed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was yeah. so good at it. I did want to bring up one thing, though, while she was still underneath the rock to talk about some of the direction. The shot down someone's arm as they were going to be lifting up the rock, I thought was an interesting choice of how they did that. And then further on, there's like a lot of close-ups and things, but they're better close-ups than some of the others I've seen in Doctor Who. Yeah, they were pretty unique in their close-ups, and I was okay with it. It was definitely something new. It didn't take me out at all. To be honest with you, that was the good part of the direction. I felt like this first part had so much filler of, look at us, we're in a nuclear power plant. Here's another part of the power plant. Here's another part. Just got really tired of seeing different elements of the power plant. You had to introduce some characters. I think that was one of the main things. I was very sad about Dr. Carter, and they got me twice. Before we start talking about the power plant, let's talk about the hospital. Because, oh, firstly, holy shit, we get a doctor of color. Yeah. Possibly Indian or Pakistani. And I love that line, Gallifrey. I haven't heard of it. Perhaps it's in Ireland. It's a joke that gets recycled in modern Who as well. I think in Human Nature, when the doctor says, or when John Smith says that he's from Gallifrey, again, it's repeated of, oh, is that in Ireland? So that kind of becomes a running joke. And then Julie, as you say, Dr. Carter, really like him. I like a lot of the supporting actors in this story. I think they're very good. There's one that we'll get to a little bit later that I thought had a very interesting scene, but we'll save that till later. Well, I had a question of Anthony specifically to you. When Dr. Carter, I love this part, when he's on the phone describing Sarah Jane <laughs> and the person's like, well, she's wearing and she, she's trying to describe the overalls that she's wearing. And it's Andy Pandy. Who's oh. Andy Pandy? So before my time, but Andy Pandy was a children's television show. Okay. I figured it was something similar. I'm not sure, but I think it may have even involved puppets, maybe. Oh, dear. Not sure. I could be misspeaking. But yes, a children's TV show that I think ran in the 50s and 60s and then had a brief revival sometime in the early 2000s. Hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Another thing that I noticed before we start going close to part two is I find the music interesting and I don't hate it, but there's a distinct sound when people are going places because there's a lot of travel involved in this serial. We're traveling through the power plant. We're traveling from one place to another. And the music has always been pretty interesting. It's not like cats on a synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> there's some good bits of the music that come up in episode four that I want to bring mm -hmm. up, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Before we move on, there are a couple of things I want to talk about. So firstly, Possessed Sarah. The way Elizabeth Sladen portrays that is so creepy because there's something like very childlike about it, but also very menacing at the same time. And then that's in direct contrast to her outfit, which is equally kind of childlike mm. and kind of innocent in its look. And then you also have Lenny Main, and I'm surprised that you haven't yet brought this up, Riley, filming her scenes as she's kind of going out on her rampage with that fisheye lens effect, which works really, really well. 
we had seen Lenny Main previously directing. He did the three doctors. He did one of the Peladon stories and one other. And I think this is the best of the ones he did. Hmm. I think this is where he does some pretty innovative stuff that I really, really enjoy and appreciate. So we're getting close to the end. We are. I also wanted to talk about the Doctor and Carter in the car together. Isn't it weird seeing the Doctor in a car that isn't Bessie? (laughs) (laughs) No, just me? I do miss Bessie. Oh, it was both Peladon stories. It wasn't just one. Ah, He did both. We end the story with Sarah going into the room with the exposed radiation source in the nuclear power plant. And she sits down opens the box, the hand starts to regenerate and move on its own, and that's our cliffhanger, and we're into episode two. I'm pretty happy with that animation of the hand. Yeah, it's pretty good. And with Sarah within that chamber, once again, my mind was thinking, they're going to kill her off like Spock. (laughs) (laughs) Right there. But no, she gets a little added protection, and I agree with what you were saying, Anthony, earlier about the menacing, but also childlike trance. Yeah, it made you feel a little unsettled, but I wanted to bring up in this episode, it always cracks me up, and I think out of the doctors we have seen so far, Baker is the one that does it the best, is the classic scene where there's some sort of calamity and you're in some sort of control room or room that where the power is held, so to speak. And the doctor just oftentimes just stroll in there like a cat and just assume they belong there and take control and weave their way into it. And eventually, despite being resisted, eventually kind of run the show. And I just found that the way that happened in this serial in part two was particularly a great example of that. Before the doctor and Carter just stroll into the control room, firstly, absolute chaos. Mm hmm. I was somewhat expecting someone to say, how bad is it? And the response to be, not great, not terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And did anyone else notice in those early scenes, when you had a close-up on Watson, the head guy in the control room, there was a fly crawling across his forehead. Oh, I did not catch that. Yeah, I was like, wow, they left that in. Cool. But we get... Uh, what's that woman's name? Miss Jackson? In the control room. I think it might be, yes. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. (laughs) I am for real. Damn, I said I wouldn't sing and you got me breaking that promise (laughs) in the same episode. Told you. But yes, Miss Jackson. So there's one to our speaking lady roles. So really excited about that. And while her part wasn't big, I did like her with Professor Watson. Yeah, I would have preferred her to have more of a larger role. I think she was fine. And I have some comments about Watson that we'll get to. I feel like a lot of this serial drags in the first two parts, in my opinion. I really? don't feel like we really get going until part three and part four, particularly part four. I love part four. I think part two is really good because it's filmed with so much tension. I mean, it's 10 years before the actual Chernobyl disaster and, you know, nearly 40 years before the Mm -hmm. dramatization, but it's filmed like a nuclear disaster movie. And the tension throughout the episode, I found really, really engaging and it just drew me in. Especially with when Professor Watson calls home because he wants to talk to his wife and daughter one last time. Oh, it hit me in the feels, Doctor Who. What are you doing? That was a nice touch. That part was amazing. I loved that part. I think maybe my trouble with it is that I was kind of bothered by the shell game or the hide the ring bit Mm. that carried on. I felt a bit too long in part two. I mean, I know that they're trying to point out the captivating power of a piece of costume jewelry, 
But I just felt like that part went too long where it's so very clear that it has a enchanting effect on a person. And it's like, well, we sent the cleaner up there. One of them didn't come back. What happened to him? I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, you should know what's going on here. It controls anyone that it touches. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. But I agree. I'm glad you reminded me about the part about Watson calling home. I did like that part, but I also knew that they weren't going to destroy the whole plant. So the doctor's plan on how to get to where Sarah is to crawl through a 200 degree centigrade duct, which is, that's like 425, 450 Fahrenheit. That's like your oven. That's what I used to cook my chicken tonight. Yeah, (laughs) that's a bonkers plan. And then Carter, who admittedly is also possessed by the spirit of Eldrad, is like, oh yeah, I'll follow you. Homie, he's a time lord. You're just a human. You will cook in that, even if the doctor can't or won't. The power of Eldrad compels him. Indeed. And also, I don't think we were asked this question enough, or if it was mentioned enough, but exactly what side of the whole Eldrad should live question are we falling on here? Because I don't think they mentioned that enough in part two. (laughs) Like, are you asking whether we think Eldrad should live or not? I'm saying that I thought it was a bit ridiculous that they kept hitting on that line over and over and over again. I think they could have cut that back by about 50%. Big Finish have a story called Eldrad Must Die. (laughs) They're balancing it out then. Yeah. (laughs) I don't mind that because it's just emphasizing what's going on. And it's really Eldrad's fault. We all know this. And how paranoid Eldrad was when you come to find out. It's like, yeah, I can see Eldrad doing this. Yeah, this tracks. And some of it is when the doctor cannons out of the duct, he says to Sarah, Eldrad must live to make possessed Sarah think that he's one of them. So some of it, I think, makes sense from the perspective of the story. That didn't bother me too terribly much, but Dr. Carter dying did. That was quite a a fall. Did anyone notice how comedically large that spanner was? And very clearly made of foam as well. Yes, yes, it was. It probably wouldn't have been so noticeable on, you know, like a 12-inch CRT TV back in 1976, but watching it on a 65-inch flat screen in 2023, (laughs) it's quite comical. There's lots of shenanigans with radiation levels going up and down and up and down and up and down, but none of our heroes get radiation poisoning because the hand's absorbing it all. It's quite convenient. Yeah, you have to have something to wave that away. Hand wavy, it's fine. I want to talk about the doctor hypnotizing Sarah. Ah, yes. Because obviously it's not the first time we've seen the fourth doctor put her under hypnosis. He did that in Terror of the Zygons. And she even gives a little protest of, oh no, not again. Yes. Yes, she did. Love that. And that snaps her out of it until she says, Eldrad must live, and then goes, just testing. (laughs) Such a troll. Oh, it was adorable. (laughs) And we go up and down, up and down. And then I was afraid that Professor Watson was going to die. You know, it had been a while since I had watched this story and I couldn't remember whether he survived or not. And I was getting convinced at times that he might die as well. I mean, particularly after him making that call and then not dying, it would have been really cruel to then kill him off at a later point. And I'm glad (laughs) they didn't. I'm really glad they didn't. Although I have to feel sorry for the workers. Hey, everyone, you have to leave. Oh, no, 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 wait, come back, come back. Oh, wait, 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 no, no, leave again. I'd quit. (laughs) Worst day ever. I hope I still got paid full time for that day. Man, I'd be (laughs) wanting time and a half for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, poor Driscoll. He's the one who's sent to recover the hand. He finds the ring. He gets possessed. 
Mm. Yes. And we end the episode with him taking the hand and the ring and walking into the nuclear core, which, to your point, Julie, is when Watson orders the second evacuation. And the control room explodes, and that's our cliffhanger. And very early in episode three, we are told Driscoll has probably been vaporized. I mean, that makes sense. I know, but poor guy, I mean... <laughs> Better to make it quick, you know? I mean, if not, it's going to be long radiation poisoning death, so better to get vaporized. And at least we didn't have to see it on screen. That makes me feel a lot better, because they've been known to do that. And so what's the solution? An unexplosion. The solution is to throw more missiles at it, which the Brigadier would approve of. <laughs> yeah. On a nuclear power plant. Right. A nuclear strike <laughs> on a nuclear power plant. <laughs> I know I'm not a scientist, but that does not sound like a really good idea at all. No. <laughs> that was just bizarre. Shouldn't the way that it should be handled is to have some sort of like water source to then just flood it? And you get a shit ton of sand and try to bury it. That's it. It's burying it with boron. That's what they did in Chernobyl. Yeah. That's what it was, boron. Yes. Yeah, you definitely don't execute nuclear explosions on top of it. That was nuts. That was nuts. And then, obviously, I know... There's a few other things that happen, but when they go to go away from it and they're like, oh, you should hide. I'm like, that is not far enough away. <laughs> right. They're still under the Cold War duck and cover. Yeah. Let's hide behind a Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> like the Jeep isn't going to get vaporized. Come on. But hey, let's really worry about the major issue here, our eardrums. That's the thing we should be concerned about. Yeah. Oh, no, they just wanted <laughs> to have Sarah Jane sound funny and they accomplished it. But yeah. it's fine. The creature just neutralizes the missiles anyway and right. uses the radiation to fully regenerate itself. Which, that right there, the door melting away as they were coming back to that shot, melts away more, melts away. I was getting myself really hyped up for an amazing creature reveal. What I did not expect was the most fierce looking glam rocker I have ever seen. Okay. First off, I do want to hit on one line that the doctor said before, but Eldrad is amazing. Female Eldrad is amazing. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. I adore her. And I sit there and I'm like, if I were one to try to use body paint and all that, man, I would try to cosplay that because that is amazing. <laughs> she is beautiful. The costume's amazing. And Judith Paris has amazing big eyes that I could yeah. easily get lost in. Her voice. Yeah, it was a very interesting effect they put on that. So good. I wanted to touch on one thing before we really dive into Eldrad, because the doctor was like, I want to try one of the oldest weapons, speech and diplomacy. I'm like, I think one of the oldest weapons was people hitting people with rocks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just going to throw that one out there. <laughs> I have a question. Does Eldrad count on the Philip Hinchcliffe women count? Yes, because <laughs> at that period of time, I would say that I mean, it's an alien. I mean, you could probably make that argument. And I know that when they get back and this is like, oh, this is my form. But I was going to say, do the Castrians even have gender? I want Eldrad to count because it was just, I love Judas' portrayal of Eldrad. So I want it to count. We'll allow it. I vote in favor. Yep. We'll allow it. Thank you. This time. I was so mad. I know we're not getting to part four, but I'm already going to tell you how mad I was. Douchebag. <laughs> But we'll get there. <laughs> well, I mean, so we have our diplomacy and of course, Watson tries to shoot Eldrad. Eldrad has some severe trust issues. Obviously, as the conversation between Sarah, the doctor and Eldrad continue, we're getting a lot of little hints and clues that, you know, 
this Eldred person. Not so cool. Yeah, they might have some deep-rooted emotional issues that make them a bit dangerous. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. She can mind meld without touching someone. All right. Interesting. By snap cut, she can add reflectors to her eyes. <laughs> that was fun. I actually really enjoyed that. And I find it interesting. Sarah Jane's thoughts around Eldred is very different than the doctor's thoughts around Eldred. Because Sarah Jane is the, mm-hmm. uh, I was possessed for this person. I don't even know if it's a, as that person. And so Sarah Jane's like, I don't like you. And you can tell that she doesn't like it for a very long time. Yeah, I really love when they go into the TARDIS and they're having that big conversation and Sarah just flounces off. She just opens the door and goes further in the TARDIS and leaves the Doctor and Eldrad in the control room. But you're also missing the best part is that after it kind of the TARDIS like jolts, she just casually walks in eating a banana. (laughs) Yes, I love how cool and like... Yep, what's going on? Just completely unfazed. Just amazing. Been a long day. She needs sustenance. Yes, it's true. Oh, and I'm sorry to go back here because since we've jumped into the TARDIS console, I feel like we're headed off to part four. But before we do, after Watson has shot at Eldrad and escapes, gets knocked around, well, he goes back to the control room and he has a conversation with Miss Jackson and he starts talking about how no one will believe me. No one will believe me. I thought that scene carried on a bit too long or I feel like they were heavily enhancing that he was about to have a complete nervous breakdown. <laughs> I think he is. I was rather yes. worried that he was still holding the gun. Oh, he was just going to kill himself. I mean, I don't. I didn't want to go that <laughs> quite that far, but I was a little bit concerned that he was just still holding and staring at it. Right. It's funny because the first serious jolting tone change that we get with the call in the previous episode is very good. That scene just felt like it carried on a bit too long, and I couldn't figure out what they wanted us to feel about it. Sometimes they will try to play it off. Isn't it funny? No one's going to believe me. They'll always have this story. Ha 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 ha. People think maybe you had too much to drink. But no, this one was going down like a dark path. Yeah. I was figuring out, was that what they wanted it to be? Was something to sit with the audience like that? If the doctor had time, what he should do is give Unit a call, tell them what happened, and be like, hey, don't let them fuck up this guy's career. (laughs) right because i feel like they would have helped him get through all that and been like okay yeah so aliens exist and that's clearly what happened here and really there's not a lot this guy could do the doctor kind of came in and saved the day but no he has none of that so he's probably gonna lose his job because he nearly melted (laughs) down a nuclear power plant poor watson awful no good day yeah so we had gone to the tardis the doctor just spouts off a whole bunch of numbers and letters (laughs) Because that's what he likes to do. I love how he does that, telling Eldrad, program it all in. Goes through it without a single pause, expecting Eldrad to keep up. And is then like, oh, by the way, if you keep that wrong, we're going to get obliterated. (laughs) Yeah, the doctor can be a dick sometimes. Yeah, I guess rightly so to Eldrad, given that Eldrad kind of possessed Sarah Jane. So we land on Castria. It's an absolute wasteland, somehow even more of a wasteland than when Eldrad left. And Eldrad turns the power on, goes to go through a door, and bam! Bolt to the chest. Cliffhanger. Out of nowhere. That's a great cliffhanger. That's like one of the best cliffhangers I can remember. There was no build-up to it. I know, it's awesome. (laughs) It was awesome. Totally unexpected. It wasn't a freeze frame on the floor? (laughs) It was not. It's hard to compete with that. And that leads us into part four. Part four. Okay, why is that guy playing Qbert on the screen? (laughs) (laughs) 
That whole thing is a repeat of the trope from Death to the Daleks. Speaking of flaws, you know, a dead creature right, monitoring is, the screen. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What I found frustrating is the doctor kept being a dick to Sarah Jane too. Sarah Jane gets hit by one of the traps and he's just like, oh, Sarah, get back up. Yeah, they're only effective against silicon. You're fine. You're from South Croydon, Sarah. <laughs> Which was so confusing to me because then if it had no effect on her, was that reaction that she had just fear or yeah. a placebo effect? It's even said it was fear and surprise. I think it was fear and surprise, but I also think that probably there was a force behind it. it must have felt something. The pressure of whatever was being thrown at her probably just knocked her down. And guess what? If you were knocked off your feet, you'd probably be a little scared too. Yeah. Yeah, Just throwing yeah. that out there. The whole concept of navigating various traps, we're back to both Death of the Daleks and mm -hmm. Pyramids of Mars in this. I'm sorry, I'm a sucker for it. I loved it. Well, they made them significantly different. They did. And that's what I appreciated about it. Because in Pyramids of Mars, some of them were exactly the same as in Death of the Daleks. <laughs> Whereas here, to your point, Julie, they are all different. And all of them. I'm not going to lie, when they get to the part where they have that big chasm that Sarah Jane also almost falls in, which would be terrifying, I'm with her 100%. I would crawl across, which sounds ironic from the person who rock climbs, but guess what? I ain't have no ropes. I'm not just going to <laughs> casually walk across. No, thank you. Yeah, that's fair. Dragging Eldrad all the way to a regeneration chamber. And in between, we have cuts to who we now know as just a bag or <laughs> an empty sleeping bag. It's told like they're getting closer, they're getting closer. And then they make it to the regeneration chamber. And <laughs> we're led at for a little bit to believe that the doctor has smashed her like a car <laughs> at an impound lot. The one thing that gets me here is I think by the time. They're trying to get Eldrad to the regeneration chamber. I think even the doctor has realized that Eldrad is bad news. I don't know that he knows 100% that it's bad news. He understands that it's more complex than what Eldrad's saying. Yeah. Sarah's really putting the pieces together because she even has that line of, wait, so Eldrad told us the traps were for alien invaders, but they're keyed for silicon-based life. What are the chances of that? And the doctor basically says, very, very unlikely. Yep. I don't think they quite understand the level of what's happening, but yeah, they are starting to really get that. And then, of course, we find out that Eldred really didn't really die, and I'm very sad. Because <laughs> we get the regenerated Castrian Eldred, played by Stephen Thorne, aka Omega. Ah, I can see that. That, that, explains, that explains a lot. A lot. What I didn't like about it, multiple things, but the main thing that I didn't like about it is I wouldn't think the personality would change quite so much between the two, because I think that the previous version of Eldrad seemed a lot more collected, and maybe she was putting on a front, I don't know, but the bombastic craziness that was Eldrad regenerated, I was not a fan of. Okay, but admit this, admit this, with his loud, boisterous voice and his constant laughing at his own jokes, doesn't Eldred give off a little bit of flash heart energy? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but not in a good not way. Not in a good way. <laughs> I do think male Eldred deserves some camp count points. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. How many are we giving him? I don't think we can give as high as five. I would say maybe two, 2.5. 2.5. Okay, two and a half is what we're going with. Boom. Now, I would like to point out that the Eldrad, what I like to call synth victory melody, was something that really stood <laughs> out to me because I don't know if we want to put that under the best or worst use of music <laughs> nomination for this year, but I know it definitely stands out as probably the silliest. <laughs> Yeah. I do want to talk about Eldrad's plan. Eldrad oh, wanted God. to rebuild the Castrian race from the race banks. Well, guess what? Rokon and co. destroyed the race banks. There's no genetic information to rebuild them from. So, pivot. <laughs> Once Eldrad is king of nothing, Eldrad's like, okay, well, I'm just going to take over Earth. Doctor, you're going to take me back. Wow. <laughs> Okay, flip side, the Doctor trips Eldrad down the chasm and even says, well, he's probably not dead. He's kind of made of rocks and then throws the ring down with him. I almost feel like that is a commentary on what an absolute joke Eldrad is. It's like, I am not worried about this creature. He can have his oh, damned ring because right. he is not really a threat to anyone. Yeah, and the other element about Eldrad that is humorous is that his goal, like you said, was to go to the race banks. You know what? I have to admit, I really agree with candidate Eldrad's speech about getting the new Castrians from the race banks jobs by having them rebuild the barriers because Castria's infrastructure, as we see, definitely needs some real help. But the thing that's so funny to me is that he wanted to build the mech up so he could control, dominate the galaxy, a very common common goal by our villains. But then when that gets taken away from them, it's the other most common goal of our villains, which is, well, I'll just take Earth then. I'll just take over Earth. <laughs> Eldrad would probably be better than our current politicians, so I'm not entirely against it. I mean, his jobs program sounds good. Yeah. And can we have a little bit of discussion about Rokon? Rokon, who played this long ass game and was like, not only do I want to make sure that we're all gone when this happens, but I want to leave a video for you just as the ultimate, like, fuck you, because we're all dead now. I know. <laughs> you know how satisfied he must have felt after recording that message? <laughs> I have returned from the grave to mock you. <laughs> <laughs> Before he died, forever long, he had that recording. He probably like asked him, like, you know what? I had a rough day. Just play that one back for me. I want to see that one again. Because I know Eldred's going to see this in a couple, what, 150 million years from now? It's just the pettiest shit ever. It's amazing. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and we didn't discuss about the trip. It's great to see the scarf being functional and used as a weapon again. Yes. That 100%. All right. Yeah, we're going to do it. It's yeah. time to talk about it's the, it. It's the time. It's here it comes. Okay, so Sarah threatens to leave and storms off. And he's not paying attention? Yeah. Any attention. And while she's packing, the doctor gets a call from Gallifrey that he has to go home. When did he start actually paying attention to when he has to go home? To be fair, he's kind of been doing the Time Lord's bidding since he was the third doctor. That's his own fault. Yeah. Yeah, but now he clearly feels like he's done his time. So now he has to be a good member of Time Lord Society and heed the call. So Sarah has to go back to Earth because no aliens on Gallifrey. Because Time Lords are dicks. Basically. You have no idea. I have some idea. <laughs> and she's all ready to leave. And as soon as the doctor's like, I have to go to Gallifrey, she immediately changes her tone. She's like, wait, I can't miss Gallifrey. You were halfway out the door, Sarah. You have to miss Gallifrey. Sorry, babe. 
<laughs> I really love the whole thing of he claims that he has landed her on Hillview Road, which is her home. There's that wonderful, don't forget me, don't you forget me, goodbye, etc., etc. And then as he leaves, she realizes that he's taken her to the wrong place. And we don't entirely get the full payoff of that joke for another 30 years. Because <laughs> we don't get that until she meets the 10th Doctor in 2006 yeah. And it turns out that she's in Glasgow Which is quite a long way <laughs> yeah. from South Croydon Which is in South London yeah. Amazing I was also very sad of how she treated that puppy Because she kept poking it with a tennis racket What's wrong with you? It's a puppy <laughs> And what is everyone's opinion about the freeze it's frame? Awful. No <laughs> We've talked about freeze frames it's very hard to pull off. I can only think of one freeze frame in all of television and film that I thought was a good way of ending something. What was that? Which Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, fair. That's it. That's the only one. Or a selection of shots. So when Barbara and Ian left, remember we yeah. got their wonderful, oh, that their was wonderful good. collage yes, that was good. of their engagement photos? Yes. Yeah, that was lovely. The montage, yeah. Yeah. That was good. We didn't think it was good when she nearly fell off the rocket in Genesis of the Daleks. And this is worse, because there's nothing for any form of tension here. And it's not even like she's like jumping up in the air and it's a freeze frame of her as she jumps. It's just, <laughs> there's nothing. There is no reason for right. a freeze frame. And it would have been so much more effective if she had just been shot walking away from behind and transitioned to credits. It's... Also unusual because the shot they have of her of like, she actually is turning back, like looking back up the sky and it's almost threatening. Like, is there a bomb about to drop? I don't know what's <laughs> going on. What does she see? She's clearly looking up to the stars as if right. looking up towards the doctor. It's clumsily done. But I will say that this write-off to me works because I think just their chemistry and their acting allowed the person in the audience to see and feel what was going on, even though if the words weren't really there. I think you could just read the emotion just through their expressions in their eyes, even though they weren't necessarily saying these things out loud. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but that's how I took it. The most recent companions who we can draw a parallel to were probably Ben and Polly. And this was handled so much better than them because they were written out halfway through the faceless ones and then showed up at the end to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about it, Joe got married off. I'm glad we didn't get that for Sarah. Liz yeah. was written out off screen. We didn't even get a goodbye for Liz. Jamie and Zoe had their minds wiped and were sent back to their times. And Victoria decided to stay in the, I don't know what it was, the 60s or the 70s, whenever Fury from the Deep was set with a family because she was just sick and tired of everything. And, you know, Katrina got killed. Yeah, she, she got airlocked. <laughs> Katarina, oh, sorry, apologies. I mean, I think this is probably one of the better companion exits that we've had so far. All right, guys, should we rate this one? Yep. Let's see who gets to go first. Oh, I do. I didn't love this story, but I didn't hate it either. It was probably slightly above average. There were some really good things going for it. I liked a lot of the supporting characters, particularly Carter and Watson. Judith Paris was excellent as the female version of Eldrad. Shame about Stephen Thorne. The plot was delightfully bonkers. I really, really loved the actual concept of the hand and the alien race that's so desperate to never let someone ever come <laughs> anywhere near them again. They will literally commit mass suicide and destroy any chance of bringing them back. Beautiful. So it's fun, 
but it's far from perfect. I think for me, this one gets seven scarf trips out of 10. Julie, let's go with you next. All right. I think I agree with a lot of what you said. There are some really good bits to it. I think the general concept is good. I think for the most part, it hit all of the things it was trying to hit. The music was good. There might be some that we can't decide if it's good or bad, but we've come across things like that before. And as mentioned, Sarah Jane's leaving was a lot better than it could be. Obviously, I did not particularly care for the male Eldrad, choice words of what I decided to call him. But Lady Eldrad, as I like to call her, was phenomenal. She's probably one of my favorite characters right now. And I'm probably going to say that that person is going to go into my favorite like supporting actors. Hit nudge nudge. That's probably what's going to happen. And I'll probably side along with Anthony, and I'm going to give this seven candy-striped overalls out of ten. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Riley, wrap it up. I agree with both of you almost all the way. <laughs> I go into the final part of this serial. I was in it, honestly, give this a 4.5 based on the fact that we had a repeating cycle of events of who has the ring. They now have the ring. Now this person has the ring. Lost the ring. Where's the ring? And I did enjoy the starting premise. I thought that was really good. And I did love the look of Lady Eldrad. Part four provides a lot of suspense and payoff, and I am a sucker for obstacles. And I enjoyed that part. That really got my score back up. And it definitely gave us a new setting because I was tired of being in the power plant for so long. Honestly, I was okay with the Sarah send off. Clearly, there was a lot more potential there as well as in the story. So I'm going to come in and give it a six obliteration modules out of 10. All right. Thank you, Riley. And so that gives us a story average of 6.67 across the three of us, which means admittedly it only has to go up against Mandragora. But so far, it's the best story of the season <laughs> on average. <laughs> Perfect. We'll see how long that lasts. That brings us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time when we're heading off to Gallifrey in The Deadly Assassin. And I'm going to use up one of my things now rather than next time round. Is an assassin any good at their job if they're not deadly? <laughs> <laughs> Food for thought for next time. But for now, as always, thank you so very much for listening. And of course, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Hand of Microwaving, was recorded on Wednesday the 4th of October 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D, and you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, Eldrad must live. <laughs>